Thursday, it's an all-new, absolutely can't-miss... Wow! First on Friday... Must-see TV becomes NBC's Star Cross Thursday. First on... I want all-new Must-see TV. In two weeks... It's coming! Yes! It's NBC Premiere Week. All your favorites and... All-new Must-see You know, my background is as a sociologist, and I kind of know how people behave with a lot of success and what happens. And sure enough, even though we had several good years, that was the peak. That was when everybody felt good about themselves, everybody felt good about the schedule. Uh, we sort of, as much as we could, got along. And then it begins, begins to become, who's, who's going to take credit for all this? You're listening to Immersed. I'm Suzanne Zinsley. And I'm Chris Zinsley. Today, we'll be creating a primetime TV lineup with the game The Networks. First published in 2016, The Networks puts players in the armchairs of TV network executives. Over a series of seasons, you compete to get the most viewers by putting together a schedule of shows, lining up stars, and courting advertisers. In the age of streaming video, the game is something of a throwback. It depicts a time when network TV was arguably the biggest force in popular culture. A time when the right schedule could make or break a company. This episode will be taking you back to that time. Showing us the way is someone who lived through those exhilarating days of network TV in the 1990s, the era of must-see TV. Hi, I'm uh, Preston Beckman. I am currently retired, but I spent 25 years uh, scheduling to television networks, NBC and Fox. Before he retired in 2015, Preston Beckman was in charge of scheduling at Fox during the height of American Idol's popularity in the 2000s. Before that, he created the primetime schedule for NBC in the 90s. Although he's retired now, he still writes about the TV business using the pseudonym The Masked Scheduler. Stay tuned as we find out how to create a dominant TV lineup in this episode of Sandy? I am going to develop American Samurai Warrior. You're listening in on a game of the networks. Um, in my nine o'clock slot. That was Sandy Bondarowitz. Taking my wacky TSA agent into reruns. She just got a new show for her network, ICS. And I am she started the game with three unpopular public access shows with silly names uh, at 8, 9, Marshall. and 10 p.m. Now her schedule is full of popular shows with silly names. With stars to bring in viewers and ads to pay the bills. Which will cancel out my three that I need to pay for. Sandy's early moves gave her an edge on her opponent, James Griffin, who's running the network U62. I think I'm going to be greedy. Yeah. By the end of the the second season, Sandy would take a narrow lead. Just one point ahead of James. It's a good turn for me. In the 1990s, scheduling was a big deal. Sometimes producers would even make deals with the networks to get their show in a good spot on the schedule. In the early 90s, NBC had made some of these time commitments. 
After joining the network, Preston Beckman said he gradually came to learn about them and how his hands were tied because of them. When I came out to uh, Burbank in 1991, uh, I was not aware of some of the time period commitments to certain shows such as Cheers. So uh, when I started the job, I wanted to make a few changes with the schedule and I was met with resistance, which I didn't quite understand, not because I believed I knew everything, but it just seemed like there wasn't even a discussion. It was like, no, no, put that back. That has to stay there. I eventually, very quickly, became aware that there were commitments on the schedule that needed to be honored. One of those time commitments was for the sitcom Wings. Paramount, the studio that made Wings, required NBC to run it immediately after another one of Paramount's comedies, Cheers. Cheers was one of NBC's most successful shows, and they wanted to build a leading night of TV on Thursday. But the time commitment for Wings made scheduling difficult for another show that you might have heard of. You know, when I got there, we had a little show called Seinfeld that we were trying to nurture. And being able to put a show like Seinfeld behind Cheers, for instance, would have, you know, driven a rather large audience into Seinfeld, which uh, not just myself, but several of us felt was the future of the network. But before NBC could move Seinfeld behind Cheers, they had to make good on a 13-episode commitment to keep Wings in that slot. Preston counted the weeks in an interesting way. I had a desk which I had brought from New York, a wooden desk, and every week that we ran an original Wings, I would put a gash in the desk to remind me of how many more weeks we needed to keep Wings behind Cheers. It was, it was also like a way of letting out some aggression that, okay, I am going to know exactly the moment when I can make the move that needed to be made. And once that commitment was over, we made that move. And um, that's when our schedule really started to take off. Back at the table, Sandy is working to improve her lineup. Okay, I am going to... She just developed a show. Develop Cringe with, with a star. Always Dies and Everything. And an ad. Aztec chocolate bars. She put it in its preferred time slot, which will get her network seven viewers in its first season. Viewers are points. If she keeps it on the air, the second season will pull in ten viewers. That's how shows work in the networks. The number of viewers that you get each season is printed right on the card. The audience numbers are set. Predictable. And I'm just going to hold it. That's not how most people imagine the TV business works. How could you possibly predict the size of a TV show's audience, right? We spoke with Gil Hova, the designer of the networks. He told us how, originally, the game wasn't about TV at all. So he was coming at it from a different direction than most other people who wanted to design a game about running a TV network. I think when a lot of people make games about television, what they do is they say, okay, well, what happens in real life is you put a TV show on and you have no idea what's going to happen. So you get the best possible script, put the best possible director, put on the best possible star, and then you cross your fingers and hope for for the best because the actual amount of viewers you get is really out of your control. You just try to put the best thing you can and then hope that the fates smile on you. 
The networks challenges players' expectations that way. It's unexpected that you would know in advance exactly how successful a show will be. But it turns out maybe that shouldn't be such a surprise. Preston, the former TV scheduler, told us it's actually easier to predict how well a show will perform than you might think. I was uh, coming out of research for 10 years. I believe in program testing. I know it gets dismissed and ridiculed a lot in the business, but um, I've never seen a very low testing pilot succeed. Preston worked in the audience research group at NBC before he took over scheduling, and he used that knowledge to make the jump. So for me, research wasn't so much, here are the numbers from last night, reporting them, this is up, this is down, as much as how can I use this data to understand the television audience. I kind of knew how to look at, at ratings or aggregate data in a way that helped me make these decisions okay, because I could kind of see the bigger picture and not just, oh, this show's doing well, this show's doing poorly. Maybe the way Gil designed the game was more accurate than even he realized. Now, I'm going to have an interesting couple of turns here. I just remember. After some scheduling changes, NBC's Thursday night comedy block was coming together. But the term must-see TV hadn't been created yet. There's a hundred stories of how it happened. We had put together a Thursday night with Seinfeld and Mad About You and uh, Wings was on the night and Frasier was on the night. And it was an extremely dominant night of television. NBC decided to give that night of comedies its own special branding. Here's my version of what happened. Um, it, was, uh, it was a Friday. Uh, we had just experienced another dominant win on Thursday, and I brought up the notion that ABC at that time had a TGIF, which was the way they branded their uh, Friday night family comedies. And I said to the people in the room, you know, maybe it's time for us to come up with a, a brand for our Thursday night schedule. And uh, Don Olmeyer, who was running the West Coast operations, sent uh, my good friend Vince Manzi and John Miller, who were the two heads of marketing, off and said, come back with a name. And they came back with Must TV. Right away, the executives knew it was a winner. Immediately, it was like, that's it. It was literally that. It wasn't, we didn't debate it. <laughs> we said, there it is. That makes a lot of sense. Must-see TV dominated television for years. That night was the home of some of the most iconic sitcoms ever made. Seinfeld, Friends, Frasier, Will and Grace. For the 1996-97 season, the six most-watched TV shows in the country were all airing on Thursday nights on NBC. The comedy block was a hit with viewers. Specifically, the kind of viewers that NBC wanted most. The currency was uh, adults 18 to 49. So it wasn't about household ratings. It was about how many 18 to 49 eyeballs you delivered. And comedies would generally skew younger than, than dramas. Focusing on comedies had other perks, too. Comedies were also more repeatable. Than dramas, so you know you could you could run the sprockets off of of comedies, and even during the summer they would generally get better ratings. Bottom line, 
specializing offered serious benefits. Go ahead and do that now. Okay. So the networks also reward specializing. So I draw three and keep one. When Sandy developed the show Cringe, that was her third sci-fi show. Once you get your third show in a particular genre, you receive a bonus. You get extra money to spend, plus either a new star or a new ad. At the end of the next season, Sandy would build a significant nine-point lead over James. The director, writer, editor, star. In the game, and place him in my green room. Players get shows by claiming them in a sort of open draft. Um, Most shows need stars or ads, and all of them cost some money up front. But once you have the prerequisites, you can scoop up any show that's available that season. So I am going to develop a show. In this game, Sandy and James aren't getting in each other's way too much. But in the real world of network TV, that's not always the case. Putting my chainmail bikini warrior into reruns. Network scheduling during the 90s often was a full contact sport. I mean, even when I was at NBC towards, you know, when we, when we were red hot, I really, I didn't count the program that much. I also believed, let the other networks do the dirty work for you. That you shouldn't be the one to make the stupid moves. You should rely on their fear, their insecurity, to make the moves that you are pretty sure they're going to make when they think you're being aggressive. The best example of that was moving Frasier to Tuesday night. NBC wanted to make a second night of comedies. More must-see TV. But moving Frasier from Thursday to Tuesday meant competing with a hugely popular show on ABC, Roseanne. Preston gathered the data, made the case, and NBC announced the big move. But before it became official, ABC tried to stop NBC by threatening to move another show to Tuesday night. Not just any show. The most popular sitcom in the country. Home Improvement. And then I get the call from Don Olmeyer, who was, uh, you know, in charge of the network. And he said, you know, I just got a call and they're threatening to uh, move Home Improvement to Tuesday night. And Don said, well, I guess the fun's over. We have to move Frazier back to Thursday. And I said, no, they blinked. You know, they're, they're going to make a move that's going to hurt Roseanne, it's going to hurt a home improvement, and it's only going to help us in the long run. <laughs> and fortunately, uh, you know, Don trusted me, of course, telling me he was going to fire me if it didn't work, but I used to hear that a lot. And um, we stuck to our guns. In the end, ABC carried out their threat. They moved home improvement to Tuesday, and Roseanne to Wednesday. But over time, the audience numbers moved in NBC's favor. Sure enough, uh, within a year, we were right there. Roseanne, you know, Roseanne was collapsing. Home Improvement wasn't what it was on Wednesday night, and uh, we had built a Tuesday night schedule. Unlike in real life, in the game The Networks, counter-programming isn't a thing. The show that you put on at 8 p.m. doesn't have any effect on what happens to my show at 8 p.m. Gil Hover, the game's designer, doesn't mind that. There were plenty of times when he was making the game that he could have gone with something that was more true to life, but he didn't, because it wasn't the kind of game he wanted to make. 
it was a tricky decision uh, because I remember there were a few testers who said, this is really a thematic. I mean, this isn't a good simulation. And I tell them I'm not making a simulation. Like I'm not interested in simulating TV. I want to make a fun game that's set in the TV world. One of the most famous examples of counter-programming came in 1994 when NBC picked up a new medical drama called ER. They put it on after the comedy block on Thursday night at 10 p.m. That happened to be the same time that CBS was debuting their own medical drama, Chicago Hope. The week that ER first aired was also the same week that Friends began its first season. The stakes could hardly have been higher. So I would always wait until I got to work to look at the ratings. And then I would print them up and I would look at them like I was opening up a hand in cards. You know, and I would put a piece of paper over the rings and I would slide, slide down the night and look at the numbers. And then I got to ER and it was like, holy, this is, this is big. You know, beat Chicago Hope, didn't destroy it, but beat Chicago Hope. And then the next week it destroyed Chicago Hope. That was it. And, and we knew, we knew between that and Seinfeld, we knew, I think at that moment we said, okay, you know, I think we're going to be the, the alpha dog here for quite a while. This was the high point of must-see TV. That June, we had our affiliate meeting, and we were doing so well that we had our meeting in Maui. And spouses were invited, and, um, you know, we were all in Maui to celebrate the fact that NBC was this dominant network. And I remember, you know, showing up, and my wife and I were, were walking to dinner, and I turned to her, and I said, it is never going to be as good as it is right now. This is as good as it's going to get. I said, well, you know, but, you know, I said, no, no, you don't understand. Now it begins to fall apart. Uh, end of round five. It's the end of the game. Income and expenses. Sandy has been in the lead for each zero. of the past three seasons. But she had held on to some shows from a couple of years ago, maybe a little too long, and their final seasons weren't especially strong. Then we age our shows. Meanwhile, James put on three new shows in the final round of the game. That gave him strong audience numbers in the home stretch. James overtook Sandy and won by just three points. Sandy's dominance had come to an end. A closely fought game. Nice, nice. By the late 90s, things were changing at NBC. Seinfeld was coming to an end after nine seasons. There were new executives in place, and an old thing was starting to return, time commitments. That was the irony that towards the end of my career there, we were suddenly back in the time period commitment game. By 1998, Frasier was back on Thursday nights, occupying the old time slot that was held by Seinfeld. The, the one thing that it did do that, that hurt us the most was we were committed to keep Frasier on Thursday night at 9 o'clock for two years. I knew that. Then uh, by the beginning of the second year, there were, there were management changes at NBC. Was, there were new people running. There was a new head of entertainment and whatever. And then very early on in the second season, this person said, you know, I think this is Frazier's not the right show for the night. Back to Tuesday, and I said to this person, uh, you can't do it. Another problem. 
Preston had argued for NBC to reduce the number of movie nights each week from two to just one. That would let the network run more TV shows. The people at NBC's movie division were not happy about it. We had this big battle and we wound up canceling the movie and then that, that created some real issues among us all which I don't think were ever resolved and that resulted in um, ch changes in, in the upper management of the company. The writing was on the wall. Preston left NBC and moved over to Fox. Around that same time, reality TV first started to appear. Big reality shows started taking over the network's primetime schedules. Eventually, in 2004, NBC moved its hit show, The Apprentice, to Thursday night. The nail in the coffin of uh, must-see TV was Donald Trump and Jeff Zucker, who moved The Apprentice to Thursday night, undoing a decade tradition of quality comedies on Thursday night. In the years since must-see TV's dynasty ended, TV networks have struggled to keep viewers on board. The competition today is greater than it's ever been. We've gone from the VCR to the DVR to streaming. And um, as, as we untether the viewer from what we're telling them to watch when we're telling them to watch it, you know, the, the uh, ability of, of people to um, create their own schedules and decide what they want to watch is taken out of the hands of the, not only the broadcast networks, but cable channels as well. So therefore, the, the job of the scheduler isn't the same as it was, you know, when I started. The network still announced their primetime lineups and make a big deal about it. But Preston said a network schedule serves a different purpose these days. Towards the end of my career, when I was uh, I had retired from scheduling, and I was now sort of a senior strategist for, for Fox. Um, I remember giving a little speech in the scheduling room, saying that you know you have to start to look at your schedule not as a schedule, but as your homepage. That you're basically telling people who you are, what you are and the kind of programming you do, knowing that that still matters. And even the way you put it together, the way it looks on, on a homepage is impor as, as important now as how it flows. After the break, more with the designer of the networks, the game that the networks could have been. Stay tuned. Let's talk about Cardboard Edison. You might know us from uh, this podcast. But did you know that CardboardEdison.com has all sorts of other useful resources for board game designers? We've got a blog with links to thousands of articles that you can search through. We've done interviews and industry reports. There's a list of playtest groups, a game design checklist, and a directory of hundreds of publishers and the kinds of games they're looking for. We have a weekly newsletter that's filled with game design tips and resources. We even run an annual contest for unpublished game designs. Pretty much anything a designer could want, we've put it all together in one place. If you've got an idea for a board game, check out CardboardEdison.com to get started. Tell us we sent you. That was weird, right?
When Gilhova started designing the networks, it wasn't a game about TV. In fact, it wasn't even the same game. Before it became the networks, it was Gil's third attempt to make a game with a unique auction system that he designed. It just wasn't connecting with whatever setting and other game mechanics that he tried to pair it with. Like, I put in all these other things to make it work with the theme, and I'm left with all these other things working together well and the auction not working well. Several times now, Gil has tried to build a game around his auction system, and then replace the very part of the design that he began with. Take one. Well, the first time I tried it, it was in this game that was a very, very early game of mine, which was about media companies trying to predict the end of the world. And that was not, it, it, the theme didn't work great. Take two. And I played the game a couple of years ago, and it turns out that we hated everything about the game except the auction mechanism. Uh, so I tried it again for a game that I wanted to do about arms merchants because I was feeling very cynical at the time. And that wound up being my game Battle Merchants, and uh, obviously Battle Merchants has no auction if you've played it. Take three. Then the third try was the Networks, and the Networks has no auction. There's even been a fourth attempt, with Gil's most recent game, High Rise. And guess what? No auction. Part of the problem might be that there aren't very many things in the real world that work like auctions. Auctions are tricky because it's they're inherently athematic unless you're specifically modeling an auction. But who knows? Could the fifth time be the charm? Will he give it another shot? No, but that's that's what I said like two or three years ago, and then I gave it another shot for High Rise. So who knows? Maybe I'll get another game without an auction mechanism out of it. Immersed is produced by Cardboard Edison. Find out more about the show and lots of other board game design topics at CardboardEdison.com. Special thanks this episode go to Nat Ives, our guests Preston Beckman and Gil Hova, and Sandy Bondarowitz and James Griffin. Music credits are available in the show notes. Cardboard Edison is backed by our patrons on Patreon. Gain access to some exclusive must-see and must-hear content by becoming one of our patrons. You can listen to episodes before they officially release, and you can hear extended interviews with our guests, Gilhova and Preston Beckman, only by supporting Cardboard Edison at patreon.com slash cardboard edison. I'm Suzanne Zinsley. And I'm Chris Zinsley. And join us next time as we become immersed in another game. Immersed is also sponsored by Haba USA Games. German design and quality, children's and family games that adults enjoy playing. Home of Rhino Hero, Karuba, and Animal Upon Animal. Learn more at HabaUSA.com. Smirk and Dagger Games, makers of emotionally engaging, immersive, highly thematic games that create a stir. Find out more at SmirkandDagger.com. Van Ryder Games presents Graphic Novel Adventures, a new line of game books where you are the hero. Graphic Novel Adventures, your choices, your adventure, your story. Visit VanRiderGames.com. Formal Ferret Games, publisher of The Networks, Bad Medicine, Wordsy, and the upcoming High Rise. Go to FormalFerretGames.com for more. Indie Boards and Cards, the maker of Coup, a dystopian social deduction game of assassination, deception, and elimination. Will you be the last one standing? Find out more at IndieBoardsAndCards.com. Brotherwise Games. 
makers of hit games Boss Monster, Unearth, and Call to Adventure. Brotherwise Games brings everyone to the table. Visit brotherwisegames.com. And... Breaking games from strategy games like Rise of Tribes, party games like We're Doomed, and family games like Sparkle Kitty. Breaking games has something for everyone. The best way to break the ice is through play. Visit breakinggames.com.